so many folks, I mean, professional planners and, and students are always looking for answers when we're constrained by time and we're constrained by resources to find solutions. And what an empathic approach to planning entails does mean taking time to listen to perspectives that aren't necessarily based on what you learn uh, in in a course or what you learn as, as you know as technical skills. It it means wow. It means setting aside what you perceive to be the problem and waiting to hear from someone else to to hear their point of view. I'm John Lewis, and you're listening to 360 Degree City, a podcast where we talk to people who are working to make cities better. Our hope is that after each episode, you'll start to see your own city from a slightly different angle. 360 Degree City is brought to you by the team at Intelligent Futures. We're a team of versatile urban problem solvers, and our aim is to figure out better ways of living together. Urban planners, designers, architects, and other city builders can often experience a tension between acting as an expert and learning from the community. But as we've explored in previous episodes, we're understanding more and more about the importance of designing great places from a point of empathy and co-creation. In our own work at Intelligent Futures, we're constantly searching for new and better ways of understanding the varied experiences and perspectives of those who live in the communities where we work. I wanted to talk to someone who's doing all sorts of great planning work with communities by putting empathy at the forefront of her work. My name is Leela Vishwanathan, and I'm an associate professor at the School of Urban and Regional Planning in the Department of Geography and Planning at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. I'm also, a big part of my life is I'm a daughter and I'm a sister, so I can't negate that. And I'm also a registered professional planner in Ontario. In this episode, Leela and I discuss approaches she uses in her community development work, how her students explored a changing neighborhood from the perspectives of local youth, the tension between expert-based and community-based knowledge as a planner, and why self-reflection is important for city building. So let's dive in. Community development is a really big part of who I am, and it has an impact on how I look at urban planning and the way that I teach. And so uh, the role that community plays in transforming cities is a good chunk of what I do. Great. Um, Can you maybe describe some of your particular areas of, of research and teaching that you do at Queen's? Sure. So from a research perspective, I'm really into understanding how people cross cultures to connect with one another. And that started off uh, on a path where I worked with a, a good number of immigrant communities in Toronto. And then when I moved to Kingston, I reflected on that work and realized that these folks who were living in countries that had experienced colonialism and were bringing those experiences back to Canada and looking at the world in a new way made me realize that I had been neglecting uh, building an understanding of the experiences of Indigenous peoples and their current day experiences of colonialism. And so I wanted to explore that further on a personal and professional basis and uh, built relationships with uh, two communities in southern Ontario, 
which led to this longer term project and uh, relationship building on how indigenous peoples in urban environments are building relationships or enhancing relationships with municipal governments. So in terms of research that's delved into both the kinds of friendships that I've developed and the, the type of writing that I've been doing with, uh, with two uh, Indigenous communities in southern Ontario. And then from a teaching perspective, uh, using this community development lens, I um, teach courses that build skills in young young people and people who are who come to school to study urban planning, and that includes qualitative research methods, uh, social planning, and community development, and then undergrad students who are trying to understand the world of uh, of cities from an urban and political geographic lens. So, uh, my my skills and interests are both mandated by what's required for me to teach in terms of training new urban planners, but also also trying to give them new lenses by which they can look at cities that aren't necessarily those that are dominant in the way in which we think about and do urban planning. Hmm. So pretty safe to say that you're uh, relatively comfortable with uh, complexity then. Complexity <laughs> <laughs> is my middle name. Uh, I think when it comes to complexity too, we, we, we have to understand that, uh, problems aren't always simple uh, in the sense that technical solutions are often the solutions we develop to solve simple problems. But I, uh, I approach com- complex problems. That's when boundaries tend to overlap. They blur. And it really means stepping into some discomfort uh, and uh, new ways of understanding a problem from more than just my perspective and more than just the ways that I was trained. Uh, and that can be tough, but it, uh, it, it contributes to a really rich and meaningful practice. Mm-hmm. And I think that's interesting. You brought up the, you know, the sometimes the tension between um, the technical aspect of uh, the planning profession and the communities and the people um, that are, that, that it, they affect. And uh, I think sometimes too often uh, professionals uh, in our, in our profession tend to lean too much on the technical and, and ignore the, the, the social and the diversity that we have in our communities today. Um, wondering, wondering if you could share some of your experiences about facilitating learning and sharing amongst those diverse groups that you, you spoke about. And, and if you can uh, identify, you know, tell a story or two and identify if there are any uh, tools uh, that you, that you think work well and barriers that, that you experience and that other folks might experience in that kind of work. Sure. So right now at my stage in my life, I can't really separate the teaching and learning from the from the professional <laughs> planning uh, side of things. So I tend to I tend to develop new ways of learning things and then exploring them with my students and then we try them out. So it's uh, it's a great space to be in. So the tools, if you want to call them tools or if you want to think of them as approaches uh, relate to a few things um, that I'll, I think that I'll touch on. Asset-based community development is an approach. Design thinking is another approach. And this facilitative practice, um, that's not a focus group, but it's something called a world cafe. Lila will talk about some of these approaches, but I'll give a quick overview first. 
Asset-based community development is a strategy for community development that builds on the assets that already exist in the community instead of focusing on the needs or the deficits. Assets could include the skills of individuals, existing businesses, schools, community groups, and the landscape in the buildings. Design thinking is a human-centered approach to problem-solving that puts empathy at the center of the process. It encourages an iterative approach where you continually test ideas along the way. And this approach is used in all sorts of sectors, from product design to social innovation to urbanism. A world cafe is a simple and flexible format for hosting large group dialogues. The approach aims to facilitate conversation between groups of people and share knowledge on a particular topic. Some features of the World Cafe include creating a special and welcoming environment for guests, providing a small and large group discussions, and having skilled facilitators help the conversation along. And those three elements, I think, is something I can touch on um, because they, they all link together. They all link to this idea and this feeling of empathy as a starting point to everything that you do. Mm. So if you think about if you think about empathy as uh, a feeling and a way to actually connect with people so that you un- try to get as close as you can to an understanding of how they see their world, um, you also get closer to an understanding of what they perceive to be a problem from their standpoint you can begin to meet people where they're at. And that means uh, contending with or confronting your own assumptions about the world uh, and about what might be an issue and what might be a problem for someone and not necessarily for yourself. And um, asset-based, so how that relates to asset-based community development is you work with communities, you work with individuals who or I should say I've worked with individuals who have often been labeled by a uh, dominant society as marginal or other uh, or less than. And the troubles that, uh, that persist when individuals begin to perceive themselves in the ways that others perceive them means that they may see only deficits. They may only see the needs that exist in their community or the needs that they, they feel rather than understanding that they already have gifts, they have skills, they have passions that enable them to take action on things that they care about. And so asset-based community development as a starting point to enable individuals and then communities to think about the things that they do have, the things that they can build on, the things that they can affect change on themselves without asking for external help is a really good starting point to then really take the next step and begin to design uh, with others. So uh, then, you know, when we think of um, this approach to design that is more collaborative, that uh, that is um, an approach that allows us to understand issues from more than one perspective, planners then have to confront the fact that they're not the expert at everything. They can't know everything. They can't build certainty around everything. Uh, and um, they can begin to uh, ask questions that are from the stamp that uh, that enable them to try to understand issues from the people who experience them. So empathizing with someone's experience, trying to understand and listen attentively 
to how they experience an issue, how it became a problem, you know, what challenges they faced, um, puts us in a position as planners where we're trained to be experts to realize that we can't know everything and that we need to find a way that we can contribute in ways that work with others that aren't necessarily us coming in and telling someone how to do something, but coming together and, and problem solving together. So this design thinking model that comes out of the Stanford School of Design is one that I'm beginning to explore a bit further in terms of how it relates to asset-based community development. And, um, and I can, um, I'm talking on and on, but I can tell you <laughs> how some of the work that my students have done um, in North Kingston here in, in Kingston, Ontario, uh, enabled my students to start seeing uh, a neighborhood that's going through tremendous change to try to see that neighborhood not from this standardized, you know, revitalization lens that municipal governments or that governments and infrastructure programs put forward, but to try to understand what that looks like from the standpoint of, of youth who are basically seeing change in their community who are beginning to get a sense of where they may or may not have control over what happens next. And uh, to come to an understanding as my students coming to an understanding as planners, ultimately how the decisions that they make can really have an impact on a community and can have an adverse impact on the community if they don't first come to terms with where those folks are at. Can can you maybe describe the the process that your students went through, um, sure. applying some of those tools of design thinking and empathy uh, with the folks mm-hmm. in North Kingston? Mm-hmm. So um, we didn't actually formally take on a design thinking model. It was a bit of an afterthought on my part that I've come to an understanding this year that what we were really doing was taking on a design thinking approach development. So it meant um, it meant working with an organization. In this case, it was the Kingston Community Health Centers and their Pathways to Education program, a program that exists uh, all across Canada. But takes on the flavor of the neighborhoods and the students and the, and the youth who are living in, in each community. Um, my students uh, began to work with the organization and the youth to try to understand a few things. One, um, what are the changes that are taking place in this neighborhood? Uh, some of which are um, a um, destruction of some of the social housing in the neighborhood because of the um, state of the building um, that had an impact also on um, whether or not they would be able to go to the school in their neighborhood or whether they would be bused outside. Um, the lack of a place for them to play, like a recreation, a communal space, uh, the lack of informal places where they could play. These were all perspectives that the students got from the youth who were um, in the Pathways to Education program uh, and uh, were directly related to the physical changes, you know, the changes in bricks and mortar in their neighborhood, but also these spaces where they want to play and where they want to have a sense of belonging and connection, where they didn't want to have to leave the neighborhood to be able to get mm. those things. And, um, and so when the students began to understand these issues from the standpoint of the youth who are experiencing them, rather than these grand narratives that are associated with 
these ideas around revitalization, you know, better spaces, better parks, better, better programs, better, better housing. Um, all of those, all of those projects take a long time. And so, although these youth are feeling the change and seeing their, their, their neighborhood transform, it's really hard to see any good that might come out of it. And it's hard to have any sense of control of what the outcomes might be. So uh, some of the students uh, looked at transportation uh, and transit and how kids accessed transit. Others looked at these informal recreation spaces uh, and then, then another group looked at um, safety uh, and walkability. And then a final group was looking at food insecurity and how uh, kids were accessing cafeteria food uh, in the schools. And so by talking to the student, by talking to the youth, by uh, using methods like mapping and mind mapping, um, by using methods that included uh, empathy-based interviews, so going in not as the expert, but as drawing from the priorities that the youth put forward, my students were able to start to develop some options and plans that could be then vetted with these kids and then ultimately uh, put forward in really short reports. And I mean like six to eight page reports that were based on on heavy duty research uh, and sharing that with the organizations, uh, Pathways to Education in particular and the Kingston Community Health Centers to show them how these youth were framing the issues that they were facing in their neighborhood and giving some options, uh, simple ones like extending the Wi-Fi from their building into the parking lot and into some of the public spaces so that kids uh, were able to use the internet, which they didn't have access to at home. Um, becoming aware that a lot of youth don't want formal recreation spaces. They want to have informal spaces where they can hang out. So how can you create those spaces and uh, maintain safety and uh, integrity in your organization where youth have that freedom, but you can also supervise and make sure that they're safe? It also uh, gave an opportunity for my students to have a conversation with our transit authority about changes to their bus stop design and their express bus uh, program and how kids are uh, intimidated by sometimes taking the bus if they're not sure how the schedule works or even if they're not even aware that their um, their uh, their uh, school uh, high school idea is uh, is effective enough to get access to the bus. So like creating programs where kids can actually have access to the bus system and feel confident to to navigate it themselves. Um, this is largely all resulting from the fact that North Kingston has been socially and spatially stigmatized for decades. And uh, these kids uh, and these have pride in their neighborhood, but they're often um, they're often very aware of how other neighborhoods um, perceive them. And so uh, my students, many of whom come from positions of privilege, were put in a situation where they had to understand a neighborhood through not their own eyes as uh, planners to be, and not just in terms of, you know, where the streets are and, you know, the trend, there's a transit problem, but according to whom they were able to start seeing these issues for a brand new way. 
And these, uh, these young people were in a position where they uh, were able to realize that their perceptions and, and interests really mattered to um, other youth older than them, those who are in university, uh, and were um, hoping to make a contribution to their city. My hope is that some of these young people too will see what contributions they can make to their city uh, if we um, if we maintain a longer term relationship with them and that's something that I try to do through um, service learning type courses where we build relationships with community organizations and they tell us ultimately what are some of the priorities in their neighborhood and how we might be able to um, how we might be able to work with them. So it's not us as experts going in and telling people what they need, but them telling us what matters to them and starting a conversation. Okay. So you, you mentioned uh, a little bit ago that the change in narrative that, that an approach like this brings. And so it, it seems to me that what, what you're describing and, and training your students to, um, to learn is, is obviously tools to, to, for empathy, uh, with the folks that they're going to be eventually be planning for. Uh, and there's a, there's a narrative that comes with that. And then it seems that there's sort of the standard, um, expert based narrative that emerges. What can you maybe talk about the tension between those two kinds of narratives and why it's important to make a shift perhaps to more, um, local based, community based, empathetic narratives? Thanks so much, John. I think, wow, you know, it, it, you're so right. It is a tension and it's, uh, it's something that I struggle with because so many folks, I mean, professional planners and, and students are always looking for answers when we're constrained by time and we're constrained by resources to find solutions and what an empathic approach to planning entails does mean taking time to listen to perspectives that aren't necessarily based on what you learn uh, in in a course or what you learn as, as you know as technical skills. It it means wow, it means setting aside what you perceive to be the problem and waiting to hear from someone else to to hear their point of view. So what that means is that um, when we see expertise as this hierarchical um, framework where you have to go to school to get a degree, to get credentials uh, in order to be able to solve problems, that can actually cut you off from connecting with others. Um, if you begin to understand that you're going to school or you're learning these skills in order to contribute to uh, communal approaches or uh, to collaborative approaches of problem solving, you're bringing a set of tools to the table, but they're not the only ones that matter. Uh, there are those who have years of experience of seeing change in a community that have networks of individuals with knowledge that comes from a different place than academia, that comes from a different place from um, professional uh, training. And, um, and it means, it means recognizing that these skills and ways of knowing have uh, equal importance. Um, but the tension is, is that when folks, when folks see, uh, training or learning as getting, um, 
a particular level of expertise that then enables that, that then makes them feel that they're the only ones who can find solutions to problems. Uh, what I often encounter are people who have become very familiar and comfortable with solving problems in the way that they feel they would want a problem to be solved. And so what we have are we perpetuate models that a certain group of individuals feel are the right thing to do. But what they've forgotten to do is listen to the people who are actually in those spaces every day confronting their own challenges, trying to get from home to work, trying to connect with their kids at the end of the day, just trying to get a sense of, of, of how, to, how, to, how to build their life in a city. So all of these te- this tension between expertise or d- these tensions between different ways of knowing, I feel are, um, are the, like the primary, um, primary challenge that I face as both a teacher and a practitioner. Uh, and as someone who works uh, hand in hand with indigenous uh, leaders uh, and community builders, as well as, you know, the diversity of people who live in, in neighborhoods, seniors, um, youth and, and otherwise, I am um, struggling with that tension as I get closer and closer to better understanding my own values and how they change um, as I get older. And I feel like um, I try to bring those that tension to the classroom so that it becomes a challenge that my students confront in the safe space, uh, contentious space, but ultimately safe space of the classroom where we can make mistakes and grapple with what, what scares us before we go out and, uh, and try them out uh, with individuals. I'm trying to get my students in a space where as planners, they're starting to think about how they can plan with people rather than just for people. Mm-hmm. And when they, when they begin to make that, and it's a tough mental shift to make because they're growing up, they're growing into this, this professional notion of what it means to be a planner. And at the same time, I'm trying to say, and trying to get them to realize they're not actually no different than anyone else living in the city. They've just maybe got different tools in their, in their toolkit. Um, and they might not always need that. They need a hammer to slam the nail in. They, mm-hmm. they might not actually be a nail. It might be something else that someone sees as an issue that they want help, uh, to, to work on. Um, so, yeah, I hope okay. I answered your question. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I think that's, that's something in our, in our own practice that we're, we're grappling with as well all the time. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, one of the ways we've, we've talked about it with colleagues, a lot of times from other disciplines, um, is this idea of, <clears throat> so if I'm a planner or an architect or an engineer, I'm trained in a certain way. So I have this expertise, um, so I have my academic or professional or technical expertise, but one of the constructive mm-hmm. ways we've, we've, we found of, of framing conversations for folks that are um, hesitant to bring other voices in is that they're, you know, community folks, we, we start, we started to call them, um, you know, experiential experts of that community or place-based experts or things like that. Um, mm-hmm. And, and really what you're doing, I think, I think the discomfort that you mentioned is, is really interesting because uh, a lot of professionals, I think, and not just planners, but a lot of professionals, they want to learn so that they can gain certainty. Um, but yes. organisms like modern cities are just complex and you, you only can get a certain level 
of, of certainty. And so I think, um, you know, being aware, like you said, of constantly aware, uh, and constantly working on understanding your own perspective, worldview values, um, I think can go a long way. Um, and I, and I've heard you talk and, and write about the role of, of self-reflection, um, in community building as well. Can you maybe talk about, uh, you, you spoke about your own practice, but, uh, just why you think self-reflection and self-understanding is so important when working with communities? Yeah, the self-reflection, um, you know, folks think that it's navel-gazing or looking in a mirror, right? It's, uh, it's, it's, it's about encountering your own limitations and, and biases and confronting them. Now, from a, from a teaching perspective, I can frame that in when I'm teaching students research methods. I'll say, you know, you're looking at the world in a different way. You're collecting all of this evidence. What are your biases when you're mm. interpreting what you see? What lens do you use to make sense of what you gathered? And often, you know, we try to figure out how do we generalize this to the greater, you know, greater good or to, to the rest of the world? How do I say that what, what is happening in this city, I can take that as a template and plunk elsewhere. And, and, and we talk about the cautions and limitations of that. But the starting point is really figuring out what your own limitations are, what you, what you have confidence in. What makes you afraid? What what biases influence the way in which you interpret the world around you? And so self-reflection is just one way of encountering some of those biases, but also realizing what values influence how you interpret the world around you. How do you determine what's actually a problem and what isn't? Is it really yours to define? You know, mm. and how do you use where where are you gathering the evidence? that you're gathering when you're doing research. From another perspective, self-reflection is also a way of grappling with your own ego <laughs> and getting right. to the heart or maybe getting to the soul of what makes you tick and what you're drawn to, to um, either encounter as a challenge or grapple with as an opportunity. Um, self-reflection also... Uh, can help you ask much better questions because you confront the fact that you can't be all knowing and that it's okay to feel the uncertainty. Um, don't sort of deal with uncertainty by finding new ways to control it. Just try to understand it better. And I feel like getting to know yourself and, uh, and understanding those limitations puts you in a much better position to let go and to be able to connect with people. So, you know, along with the empathy and the self-reflection is ultimately the kinds of connections we get to make with people so that we can work with them to build communities, either those that we're going to live in or that we contribute to, um, even if we're there just for a short time. It helps us really appreciate where we're at the moment that we're in and not always worrying about what's going to come next or whether we'll fulfill, we're fulfilling the wishes of, of people who come before us that we can really be present in working with people. Um, which ultimately is what it comes down to. It's about connecting with people mm -hmm. uh, and, and building communities that way. And, and so do you find in, in your, uh, whether it's your teaching or your professional practice, um, because I, I think, uh, I've observed a lot of folks that, um, that consciously actually draw a line between who they are as the person after five o'clock and who they are in, in their day job. Um, 
Yeah. That that reflection challenges the the individual that's both a professional and a and a wife or a dad or a father or a grandmother. Um, it it kind of blends those worlds. Um, what are your what are your thoughts about how how you um, explore your assumptions and are a self reflective? Um, can you be a self reflective um, professional? I guess without being a self reflective human being. <laughs> Well, we're really getting deep. <laughs> I know this is <laughs> we're getting deep. I, yeah. I love this. I mean, I really, gosh, that's such a great question. I think what uh, what we're getting to is what makes us human, and it gets to those really deep questions about what makes us human and how do we relate to the non-human world, whether it's uh, from a spiritual sense whether it's in terms of the stuff that's associated with their ego, the labels that people put on us or that we put on ourselves, you know, like a professional planner or a partner or, you know, parent um, or sibling. I think I've been working really, I can say what I've been doing is I've been working really hard to try to understand all facets of who I am as a person in every space that I enter. And so that means that rather than always compartmentalizing, which actually can make life easier, it means that I'm confronting the fact that life is really messy mm-hmm. and that I, I need to better understand how all of these facets make me who I am, not just one of them. And how I've really come to embrace that more and more is through my work with Indigenous communities. It's through the work with people who are land managers in their own communities who are who are either called to that role or who are elected to that role or appointed to that role that that is a role that they hold whether they're going to a hockey game in their community or whether they're in a public meeting or whether they're connecting with a cousin or a sister or someone from their family that they're, they're all of those things in every space that they enter. And so in their lives, in, in the lives of, of my friends who are, who are land managers or who are, who are indigenous planners, that's a 24-7 identity. It's not, uh, I'm a planner when I'm at this meeting or in this space, because they're building and contributing to their community in every aspect of their being. And so... I've learned how much weight can be associated with taking on that position. And it's made me reflect on how I became who I am, um, what I want to contribute to my students and how I want there to be more of an alignment with who I am in the classroom, with who I am in the community um, and uh, who I am when I'm working with people who aren't necessarily living in my neighborhood right now, but who are people I connect with through research um, through the professional realm of, 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 of planners and also in academia. And that is, uh, talk about discomfort. That That's forcing mm. me to really reflect on um, why I do what I do and, and how I've become who I am. And, um, and honestly, John, I mean, that's made me realize that the, the, the stories that I encounter are really um, what makes uh, a person and what makes uh, a, a community where they live. Uh, it, it, it puts me in a position where I, I am more and more in a position where I have to let go of what I was trained to do and come to confront 
what people need from me and what I'm actually capable of, of doing, um, whether that's, you know, in my role at home or whether it's my role at work. And, uh, and so it's, it's, uh, both freeing, it's both liberating and also it can, it, it, it forces me to confront all of those things that, that make me scared. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is where I really confront the fact that planning has an emotional con- component to it, that it's got technical components to it, that it has components to it and that the time constraints that we work with will not don't always help facilitate us coming up with solutions that are going to that are going to solve the problem forever um we're going to have to be in a position where we're willing to revisit them in more ways than one um whether it's through formal mechanisms or informal ones. And I think when I was younger, I felt when I was a student, I really, really wanted to better, um, better, uh, gosh, to really make it in the planning world, whether it's through, you know, the policy work that I did or the community work that I did. And I thought it was easier to compartmentalize um, each aspect of my life. But I think that that caused more problems than it did opportunities and that when I began to be, began to be able to embrace all of these aspects of myself, who who makes me who I am, um, it made my work more accessible. It made me more open to meeting new people and learning from different ways of knowing. For someone who was already embedded in co- cross cultural community work, um, I really had to take the years of work to walk the talk. Uh, and, uh, and it wasn't just, you know, growing up in a multi-generational space or in a multilingual space or a multicultural space. It was really figuring out, you know, how to, how to be able to be that open person in all the different spaces that I inhabited. And that's tough because it means that you face, um, you have to confront, um, people's perceptions of you, perceptions of your capacity, uh, and you have to confront that in yourself as well. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, you've asked me a deep question. I think I, <laughs> I think I followed through with the deep answer. <laughs> we're certainly we're certainly not addressing the uh, the sort of stereotype of the planner that just says the zoning bylaw says this, do this. <laughs> you know, and that's it, right? I mean those those might be the simple those might be the simple uh, answers to simple questions, but really, when you ask the deeper question, which is you know, what were the bylaws uh, there in the first place? And what are we what are we enabling and what are we preventing? We we get into those deeper questions about society. And I know a lot of planners and a lot of students don't want to face that because it means really delving into that complexity. It means thinking about what kind of agency they have themselves as opposed to simply implementing that which already exists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I th- so, I th- sorry, yeah. go ahead. No, no, no. You go ahead. Well, just just thinking that uh, this is probably we'll have to have a part two. I think obviously we're going so deep, but we'll oh uh, th- then then you could layer on the the whole issue of um, not only community and professional and individual, but um, how they exist within organizations and institutions that that embed that. Right. So, I mean, something I I don't take for granted anymore is is uh, our mm-hmm. small shop um, allows me the freedom for sure to 
I am who I am, whether I'm the president of, of Intelligent Futures or John the dad or the the podcast host. Um, but I have a I've created this small company that uh, enables that for me and my team, I think, to large part. But most there's a lot of folks that don't. They might work in a large municipal government of tens of thousands of people. And so there's there's another layer on top of all that, too. Well, absolutely. And I feel, I mean, one of the roles that I've played uh, as a professional, you know, after, you know, getting all these degrees and, and, um, and working with communities is that you can change institutions from within. It takes a certain kind of know-how and experience and willingness and, um, and uh, resilience, I think, to work within an institution to try to change it from within. And I feel that's where a lot of my strengths have fallen or that's where I've ended up. Um, and so you can have individuals within institutions or within governments who are really both resisting uh, from, who are resisting from within and trying to, trying to innovate from within. Um, but at, at some point I feel you, I mean, I know I have, I've faced the, rigidity or the boundaries um, within these institutions that I've worked with uh, and worked within. And I have to ask myself, you know, can I, can I actually do more? Um, or, it, you know, is this, have I reached my, reached my limit? And that's when, you know, the reminder that you're part of something bigger, that you can connect with others, you can partner with them, you can encourage others to take action um, to make the world a better place to, um, means that, you know, um, means that we, you know, we can actually, we can actually affect change, whether we're within a large institution or where we're within a space that we, we were able to take the initiative to create ourselves. I think the point is that, I mean, you and I, I'm working in an institution and you've created your own organization. We're connecting, um, we're connecting right now. And I think by sharing this conversation and sharing these ideas, we can, we can take them to the other, other communities or people that we connect with and, and try to, uh, instigate change or, or reinforce good things that are already present. But it is, it, you know, we, we all have our own struggles and I, I, and I go back to the, idea of empathy and I go back to this need for building connection I think when we when we have empathy for one another we we come to an understanding how we're each struggling and that we can we can try to help each other to um, overcome whatever obstacles we're facing and and maybe work together for um, the betterment of the different communities we work with so you know I mean all of all of those all of those aspects um help, uh, help us become better, better individuals and members of our families and communities and organizations. I think I have to believe that I feel, you know, this, this notion of hope is so important when you're working with younger people. I mean, there, there has to be a reason for them to feel they're contributing to something larger. And so even in my darkest times, I, I cannot afford to not inst you know not instill some hope um, in 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 younger people because otherwise all they see is despair around them and I don't want to contribute to that further. So you know, being a teacher and being in the space that I'm in, I feel like there, there's got to be this glimmer of hope so that these generations that I don't see 
And I've learned these seven generation teachings from my indigenous partners, but also uh, from my from my ancestors, from my grandparents that, you know, what they sacrificed, they sacrificed for me. I feel like I um, I owe it to my students and to the next generation to always show where there is hope so that they they feel that there is something greater than themselves that they can contribute to. Amazing, and I think uh, your your students are, are certainly lucky to have you. And as having uh, having one of your former students in our shop, I can uh, yeah. I can attest to that. <laughs> That's awesome, John. <laughs> okay, so we have uh, all right. So I think we're obviously going to have to have uh, part two sometime in the future and go even deeper about everything. Um, I love that. <laughs> but, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll wrap up with, uh, the same question that we ask all our guests, cause we want to get a good map of the world of, uh, good cities. That's it's, it's pretty much selfish, good places that I think I should travel to. <laughs> um, can you share a, a city that you love and why you love it? Oh yes. So, I mean, my first choice is always Montreal. That's the city I grew up in. And every time I go back, I, I see a whole new layer um, but I think the city that I would really want to share today is Amsterdam. Hmm. Um, and the reason why, I mean, I'm drawn to Amsterdam. Uh, my sister would say it's because of the cheese, but she's the <laughs> cheese lover. It's re- and it's not just about the bikes either, because that's the obvious thing. Um, for me, it's, it's one of these cities, you know, it's the first time I ever visited it was when I was three years old. And my parents were on their way to uh, bring me to India, which was their ancestral land. And it was the first time I ever visited India. But we we stopped over in Amsterdam. And um, my mother tells me stories about how I was both intrigued and scared of uh, of being in a boat in the canal <laughs> and, um, you know, curious where, where we were. And I and I feel like that in my heart. I'm drawn to cities that are connected somehow to rivers and canals and, and how that, that, that transforms the space in the city. And Amsterdam being um, a city that's based on all this reclaimed land is, is fascinating for that reason. But as an adult, what's really drawn me to Amsterdam is that it, confront, it helps me confront issues that I confront at home but through a different lens, the the story and the impact of colonialism, um, the uh, the values of liberalism, the the issues associated with tolerance, uh, and the um, just this ability to test ideas by creating regulations and seeing what happens. <laughs> I um, I'm fascinated by how Amsterdam does that. And um, what we can learn from that. So, you know, now that I'm a planner and I'm grown, I'm grown up, I'm looking at that city in a brand new way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also have a lot of fun riding streetcars. That's the reason why I love Amsterdam. <laughs> but it's uh, to me, it's a city that continues to fascinate me. And um, when I do get the chance to go back and spend a few days there rather than hopping off in Amsterdam on my way to visit family in India which I don't do often enough, I feel like it's a, it's a place that has a lot of history where protest has led to rethinking redevelopment, where um, regulation has, uh, has been both the uh, opportunity to explore the limits of liberalism, but also the challenges of it. it. It's a space where I just, I really enjoy just being in, but also makes me think and look mm. at, um, 
my own country in a whole new way in terms of how cultures interact, how we uh, contend with present and past colonialist practices, and um, and all the great things that we as planners uh, love to talk about, which is multimodal transit, um, walkability, uh, great food, uh, understanding the experiences of cultures, um, both butting heads against each other, but also um, sitting side by side. So yeah, Amsterdam is one of those great cities. This episode went kind of deep. Like I said in the interview, we'll have to have a part two with Leela. I really appreciate how she's pushing tomorrow's planners to maintain their curiosity and concern for the experience of others as they build their own expertise in the field. As my own career has progressed, this is something I've found increasingly difficult yet increasingly important. While I have considerably more knowledge about cities than I did at the start of my career, consciously maintaining a beginner's mind allows me and my team to better listen to the communities where we work, and it also allows us to keep our eyes and ears open for novel solutions that best fit the context where we're working. Cities are just too complex to think that you have all the answers every time. 360 Degree City is created by our team at Intelligent Futures. To learn more about the work we do, go to intelligentfutures.ca. I'm John Lewis. Thanks for stopping by.